0: Had a wonderful week down in Georgia. My buddy Todd Fox drove down from Indianapolis and jumped in the car with me, and we headed on down to Macon, Georgia, and we went to see Dwayne Allman's grave. Just a beautiful, beautiful cemetery. I've been in quite a few cemeteries in my life, and it's one of the prettiest that I've ever been to. We headed on over to Athens, Georgia. On the way there, we ate some boiled peanuts, and I highly recommend boiled peanuts if you've never had them and I recommend you finding some guy with a, a rusty cauldron with mud packed to it, and he's all sweating, maybe just alongside the road somewhere. That guy seems to always have the best boiled peanuts. But we went on into Athens, and I was there to do a session with the drive-by truckers for my Pandora show, Country Built, and that should be up sometime very soon. If you haven't heard the show, I recommend that you check it out. You go to pandora.com slash and you can find all kinds of really good stuff there while i was in athens i went ahead and took in some rem sites i saw the train trestle that's on the back cover of murmur and i also went and saw this site of their very first gig it was an old church that had been torn down and they put up condos and named the condos after the church i think that says a whole lot about the way we do things these days but drove on back home and stopped off at finster's paradise gardens been there before but you know if you're driving through that way since somerville georgia just had to stop off again spent the whole afternoon had a great time and then we crossed over the mountains into alabama over lookout mountain to go visit finster's grave and we were really sad to find out that the tombstone had fallen over. and It appears to have been that way for quite a while. I'm gonna make a couple of phone calls and see if I can get somebody to take care of that. It was great to see my buddy Todd again and get to travel with him, but it's also pretty good to be back home. <laughs> This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Pete Finney. Pete's a great steel guitar player. He's played with everyone from Carl Perkins, to Bobby Bear, to Radney Foster, to Patty Loveless, to Bonnie Prince Billy. But today he's gonna talk about the time that he spent playing with Doug Somm. And he's got a lot of great stories about that time. And it was a wonderful time to be in Austin, Texas. Pete was nice enough to invite me over to his kitchen table here in East Nashville. And we got a little bit rowdy and both of us were bumping the table a little bit. I apologize if you hear that every now and then, you'll know what it is, but we were having a good time sharing stories. You know, Pete was so comfortable that he got off the mic a little bit. It's a little quiet in spots. I apologize for all that, but I don't think it will ruin anything for you. So I'm gonna jump out of the way. Here's Pete Finney.
1: Sixty eight, sixty nine, seventy Rolling Stone magazine had just come out. I was a total music nerd. I'd started out as sort of a folk music nerd and got into rock and roll. But I used to read Rolling Stone magazine back when it was a serious music. It was the one sort of counterculture thing. It was almost an underground newspaper on a national scale. But I they had great music writers and I I trusted their music writers more now that I know what I know about music writers, I would take it all with a grain of salt. Now that I am, <laughs> now that I am sort of one. Um, anyway, they loved uh Doug Sommes, Sir Douglas Quintet, and then I knew the one hit record, I knew she's about a mover, and it was okay. And I uh, probably heard one or two other things, but they used to talk about him quite a bit. And uh, I found the Mendocino album that was his second big hit in a dollar bin somewhere and bought it. I thought some of it's just incredibly sloppy and it's all over the map it's sort of country and then it's sort of tex mex with horns and then there's a blues song and there're obviously hippies in San Francisco and I just some about it just really hit me I loved it it was real in all the right ways and the imperfections were part of it and there was just an attitude that was just and it's very sort of bright and sunny fun music so I fell in lo- love with Sir Douglas Quintet and Doug Somme without knowing a lot about him fairly early on just from one record. A few years later, he made a very high profile record called Doug Somme and Friends. that had Bob Dylan on it in a sort of incidental way, but it got played up in Dr. John and uh was on Atlantic. He got a big push and a big promotional thing out of that. and. I bought that, I just went right out and bought that, and it had a song on it called Is Anybody Going to San Antonio? which at the time I didn't know was a Charlie Pride song, but it started off the record, had twin fiddles, um, steel guitar, kind of a corny song, but sort of in, irresistible as well, and right up, it was something that Doug could just knock out of the park, and he had... I believe one of the Rolling Stone reviews said, and this stuck with me, that he has a kind of voice that you could recognize. You know, coming out of a tiny speaker coming through too, well, you would still recognize his voice. It's very distinctive. So I love that particular song, and I never thought much about it, but I had started playing Pedal Steel by that time. Country music was coming back in, and, and sort of in the, there were like hippie bands playing country music. I ended up playing with sort of old school country bands, and we learned every George Jones and, Merle Haggard's song as he came out is the best school you could ever have I was the token hippie with a bunch of what I thought were really old guys they were probably 30 I was 19 and 20 anyway I I went to see Doug Somm play at the Cellar Door which is a fairly famous showcase club in D.C. where a lot of people got starts or, I mean Miles Davis recorded live albums there and Peter, Paul, and Mary I mean it was a real diverse it was very much like the bottom line in New York it was a, a showcase club and Doug Somm was playing there one night went down to see him and he had a bunch of friends of mine from D.C. playing that he had picked up. I didn't realize he was, he never had like huge success and he was sort of hand to mouth. He had great musicians in San Antonio and Texas that he played with his whole life on and off. But on this particular trip, he came to D.C. and hired some friends of mine to back him up. And I was like, wow, this is too cool. And that also gave me the opportunity to go back and say hi and meet him. He came back to play the same club six months or a year later, and somehow I knew he was bringing his, some of his Texas guys that went all the way back to his early hit records were coming with him, but he didn't have a steel guitar player. The cellar door was not the kind of place you could just show up and then go out to your car and bring a steel And if they invited you to sit in. People were sitting very tightly in close tables, and they'd paid what would have been a high cover charge at the time and very... It was organized, and they did a sound check in the afternoon. It was not like a local bar; it was like a small concert venue. I knew that that Doug was open to using local musicians, and I knew, and I'd made a little bit of a beachhead with him. You know, he'd probably recognize me if I walked up to him. And uh, I was trying to figure out a way to get in there and sit in with him. And the night before he was going to play, I ran into this guy at a party after whatever gig I had. So this guy said, well, I play with the Kinky Friedman and we just travel as a duo, but his, his thing is he likes to get as many local musicians up on stage with him as he can for the finale. He said, does anybody here want to come play? And I, light bulb went off in my head. I just want to have my steel guitar in that club so I'll have a chance of playing with Doug Sahm, And it worked. I went officially to play with Kinky Friedman played one or two songs with Kinky that I never heard before. It was a total cluster. And I ended up, Doug said, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I've got my band here, but we're going to do a few songs where Steel would be great. Do you want to play? And I was like, yeah. And he, as I sort of thought he would, he called that song, Is Anybody Going to San Antonio? And I love the Steel parts on his record from that. And I knew, every I mean, Doug was not the kind of guy that would want you to play something note for note. He was the opposite of that. But I didn't know that. And I went in there and and sat in and I played that song and I pretty much played it just like the record and felt and we played, and it was fun, and we hung out a little bit afterwards. And I went home, and that was that. And three or four days later, I got a call from Doug. He was in New York, and I wish I could imitate him, but if you he they leave little snippets of his talk on a lot of his record for good reason because he talks really fast. And man, you got to come down and man, it's just a stone groove. And just man, it's really happening in New York. We had Dr. John play last night, and Paul Simon was here, and Johnny Winter's going to be here. You should come up and play. And I was like, okay. So I got a friend and we drove to New York and double parked outside the Lone Star Cafe. And I carried my stuff into, I don't know if anybody went to the old Lone Star Cafe in New York. It's pretty legendary, but it was a older restaurant building had a revolving door and I had, you know, 80 pounds steel guitar on one hand, 40 pound amp in the other, my car double parked with my friend in it outside and, uh, it's like eight o'clock at night, the night of the show. And I walk in, I go through the revolving door and I get which is hard enough. And I get to the other side and it is just wall to wall, assholes and elbows, people waiting for Doug to come on. Somehow I got my stuff up to the stage, ran in, saw Doug, who was probably surprised to see me. He said you should come up, but I bet he forgot about it as soon as and he's like, Oh yeah, man. He had all of, he had a big Texas fan. He had his horn players, he had Rocky Morales, some really legendary players. Great, great players play with Doug on and off. So I I played with Doug that night and it was great. And there's horns there and there's Johnny Winter out in the audience and there's somebody else. And I'd never played in New York before. I'd just been playing DC bars and this was like huge. And again, I didn't really think it was going to go anywhere. and The end of the night, Doug came up and said, man, that was a stone groove and that was great. And he said, if you want to come to Austin, you got a gig, it, so come on down. And that was exactly what I wanted here. I drove from Washington D.C. to Austin on the strength of a. I already knew the guy was, I love him to death, but you know, flaky and a stoner in his own little world. (laughs) On the strength of him saying, "You come down, man. If you come to Austin, you got a gig." And I drove down. I didn't like. I didn't like sell. I didn't move out of my house or anything. But I drove down with my steel and and I looked and. Doug had a thing, he was based in Austin, originally from San Antonio, but based in Austin for years, and a big cornerstone of the whole Austin scene. He was sort of the rock pillar in Willie Nelson in the early days, early 70s, and Willie was the sort of country pillar, and they sort of overlapped a lot. But um, Doug had been, he sort of famously, I I found out later because he probably owed people money or people were tired of mooching or I don't know, whatever. (laughs) It it sounds horrible. Um, He would periodically pick up and go to Vancouver for a month or go hang out in uh, Scandinavia for a month or two where he had, you know, still had like hit records or he would just kind of disappear and go somewhere else. So I got to Austin and the local paper, the Austin American Statesman, above Mm. the title of the paper, like whatever you call the thing that runs above the top, it said, Mm. Sir Doug Returns, you know, Four Nights at Soap Creek Saloon. Mm -hmm. I was like, damn. So we played... The original Soap Creek Saloon was a smaller bar in the south of Austin. i just missed it by a month or two. It was a legendary place. It was a dirt road. Much of the legendary stuff that comes from Austin music lore in the 70s is from the Soap Creek Saloon. Doug lived right there. I missed that. That place had gotten closed. They had taken over a place that had been the Skyline Club, which was a big sort of rambling wooden fire trap dance hall. It's very much like the Broken Spoke that's still there in Austin today. It was that kind of place. And it was the last place Hank Williams ever played before he died. A year or two later, it was the last place Johnny Horton ever played before he died. It's sort of a fluke. But it had a long history as a country bar, probably the place that hippies wouldn't go at the time. They also had a picture of Doug Somm, who had been a child prodigy country star. There was a full-scale 8x10 publicity photo of little Doug on Sarge Records, and he had an old Fender steel guitar and a fiddle and a guitar. And that was, that was there from when it was a country bar. Anyway, now the coolest sort of rock, blue I mean, Stevie Ray Vaughan was an unknown. He played there, Delbert McClinton. First week there with Doug. I was a totally unknown in a new city. Marshall Ball opened for us the first night. The T-Birds opened for us the second night. Alvin Crow opened for us the third night. And I forget who opened for us the fourth night. So for me, it was just like, the perfect introduction. Just, I mean, I was on top of the world. I was like getting introduced this Austin Cena.
0: You walked into Austin through the front door. I did.
1: I, I mean, inst- talk about instant credibility because everybody loved Doug. From the, everybody in the country world knew him. Everybody in the blues world knew him, and he was just universally loved and respected. So, yeah, it was just an amazing week. Although this started with, I, they, they told me, well, we're going to all get together and rehearse. We get the horn players. We're going to be there, you know, Thursday at 4 o'clock, and, you know, because I told them I was coming at some point. And I went there Thursday, 4 o'clock, nobody there, 5 o'clock, nobody there, 6 o'clock, nobody there, 7 o'clock, nobody there. <laughs> and I was like, what's going on here? Was like, that was that was that was all I needed to know about the nature of that gig. But I played. It was great. Doug... very easily have gone back and i'm sure when he said hey come to austin you got a gig he could but things were loose enough if doug had a gig at that point he would book a gig and sort of tell everybody and different he must have made sure there was a bass player and a drummer there somebody had to have done some organizing but on any given night it might be a horn section and me because i was there i had nothing else to do i was like i'm coming to every gig I didn't realize that other people would sort of come and go, depending on what else they had. It was sort of a, a floating collective of Doug Song musicians, but some really amazing musicians. Jack Barber, who'd been the original quintet, played bass a lot. Augie Myers was not around then. He had his own band in, in San Antonio, and I don't know if they'd had a falling out. They would later reunite in many different ways, but at the time, he was not there. The other, Augie being the keyboard player, is sort of defined the Sir Douglas sound. So it was a really, really exciting time for me, just thrown in the deep end of the Austin scene. Were you making money at these gigs? Actually, yeah, Doug was very fair. Like those gigs, um, he was very fair about the money. I think they just counted it all up, and if there were eight musicians, he'd make nine piles and take two and then pay everybody else, and that's perfectly fair. And he was honest about it, and he was cool. If there was money from the gig, he would pay everybody well and I made more on those than I'd ever made anywhere else. And this was in Austin in a club. And famously you don't make money in Austin clubs. But if you're a Sir Doug in this year, we I later found out we would go on the road. We did some short trips here and there. That's there were places where he maybe had canceled a gig and had already taken the advance and he was going to the gig knowing that they weren't gonna have any money to pay him and then there would be some fast talking and some excuses and we'll talk to you next week and so there was some kind of shady stuff but it grew out of just the looseness and the I, mean, I have to say i mean everything about this whole era and doug is just he was not into hard drugs i don't think he, he hated cocaine he didn't drink much if at all i think i was famous for smoking a lot of weed that's part of his not betraying any confidence <laughs> that was part of who he was and you hear him they're just like these he's naturally speedy he's just a fast talking sort of adrenaline and he And this is the first time I'd ever seen this in my life. But if he had two joints, he'd give you one. No questions asked. But if he just had one, he might smoke the whole thing and you'd be standing there and he wouldn't hand it to you. (laughs) I'd never seen that in my life. Part of that whole sort of fast-talking stoner thing, he was pretty self-absorbed. It wasn't like ego or whatever, but it was just whatever he was into in that moment is what he was into, and that's what he was going to talk about. And he wasn't necessarily... Curious about what you did that day or where you came from or what's your things sort of revolved around Doug. And it was all he, he was definitely one of the most unique and charismatic characters. Doug's music, I mean, his own music background, he's playing country professionally or semi professionally at 10, 11, 12, you know. In the, Doug had famously gone when he was eleven or twelve to see Hank Williams, and I'm, I'm wanting to guess that it might have been the last Hank Williams gig. But he talks about sitting on, Hank's lap. He played steel one or two songs. They wanted to bring him to Nashville to, well, you know, this eleven-year-old guy who can play steel guitar. Let's take him to Nashville and put him on the opera he just maybe one time, not a career thing. His parents wouldn't let him. So Doug met and and I think played with and definitely definitely met Hank Williams so the gigs once i got there and and doug would say well we're playing in such and such a place and it would usually be fairly close to austin at that point he had just gotten back with sort of it wasn't like there was a tour and we had an old converted school bus with you know salvation army furniture (laughs) and it was not a luxury (laughs) but the gigs would be different people would show up for different ones and i don't know how how much he was conscious of it if there was there had to be somebody else sort of organizing some of this stuff but just for instance if all the horn players showed up And the keyboard player, he would probably do a lot of, like, classic Texas, like, Bobby Bland, Jr. Parker, horn-based, like the Houston sound kind of blues, which is also the San Antonio fan. Not guitar-based blues, but the hardcore fans. If you know early Bobby Bland records, there was a sound, there was Duke records, horn arrangements, fairly sophisticated. Um, Doug could do that stuff just incredibly well he played t-bone walker is where that stuff kind of grew out it's a sophisticated swing based kind of blues it's very different from chicago blues and and guitar based blues that so many people think about and he'd always done that when he played blues in san francisco it was like he didn't do the three-piece 10-minute guitar solo blues he did the very tight with horn arrangements if you them, so there was a lot of that they might play some the blueser rootsier kind of jazz stuff like a horse silver or something like that because that's what the horn players would want to do and on those gigs i was sort of marginalized they would let me play some and he might do one or two country songs or whatever but they would let me and i could join in like i could pick a part with the horns and play and and nobody told me what to do i didn't want to play a bunch of steel guitar lakes in the middle of a bobby bland song because that I don't. I love steel guitar, but I don't. It doesn't add to that. So I chose my moments there, and I was sort of a less important part of the band. But there might be another gig where it was just the guitar player and I, and a bass player and drummer showed up. Of course, Doug was a great guitar player as well, or an, an excellent. I don't know he's great. I mean, living in Nashville with so many great guitar players, he he wasn't. <laughs> <It> changes things. <laughs> he was a a singular, very. He could play T Bone Walker stuff like. That was his home base, but he could do some other stuff. He was he could lead the band on guitar, but if only bass, drums, and guitar and steel showed up, he was liable to play Lefty Frazelle and and uh, sort of obscure Texas country stuff. And he could still play steel. He did. He sat down at my pedal steel once, and I, I didn't know that much about his history as a steel player. And he hadn't played much. Played a little bit of very rudimentary steel on some uh, Sir Douglas records because he hadn't been playing for a while. But he was—he goes back to the old non-pedal swing. Leon McCullough, Bob Wills, or Hank Williams' days of steel guitar was his heyday. He would sit down at my steel and get on, I won't go into the minutiae of, of steel guitars, but there are different tunings and different things. And I play a double neck with two different tunings on it, pedal steel, and he would get on the back neck that was closest to what he was used to and just retune it by ear and play this amazing stuff. And he could still really play. If a keyboard player was there and not the horns he would probably do a lot of sir douglas quintet and it would have the pumping organ and i would sort of lay back again and chose my moments and he might do a country song or two so it was all over the map and it was really fun you just sort of never knew and i still to this day don't know how that worked in terms of who called and maybe he <laughs> said well i don't have enough money for a 10-piece band let's just call these but for me it was just i'm going to be there This is 79 and 80 is what I'm talking about. So it was sort of the tail end of the uh, the Cosmic Cowboy thing had sort of peaked, and Doug was kind of a part of that and kind of not. The Antones, Stevie Ray Vaughan, T-Bone, St- Stevie Ray Vaughan was going to be a big star within a year. Audiences were, uh, it was Austin. I mean, it's hard not to use the word hippie, scruffy, loose, casual, a lot of cheap draft beer and plastic cups. Um... <laughs>
0: There's not a lot of other places like right. Austin. If you weren't smoking now.
1: weed inside the actual club, which would probably vary from club to club, you would definitely be out back. Two or three dollar cover charge would probably be high for some of these things. Doug could probably get away with more than that for
0: the big nights, but were these audiences really engaged with what was happening? Oh yeah, and everybody
1: 70. dances. It's it's Austin. The whole thing about the thing about Austin, and then this it's not a new observation, but it's certainly important here, is that what makes austin what it is is that the university draws people from all over the state and it's also not just a university but the fact that it's the one place where you can safely be a non-conformist or a beatnik or a bohemian or a hippie or a freak or what any of those variations you want to call it a cosmic cowboy if you want to go it's the one place you can feel comfortable so so I'd draw in the same way that you know greenwich village drew all the folkies, and if you want to be a folky and you were at Bohemian Inclinations, New York in the early 60s, was like the safe place and the professional place to be. Austin was just that way culturally, and whether you can, I mean, you can reduce it to just be in a party town, but it's way more than that because there was so much creative stuff going on. And I mean, he came from San Antonio, and he would he would say, i got to drive to San Antonio just to get decent Mexican food, which for people who go to Austin and think it's a Mexican food Mecca, which it is, but he would say, no, man, i got to go back to so-and-so's ice house in San Antonio. He was funny that way. Well, the other really important thing about that is you have to remember is that Texas, every small town, every decent sized town in Texas had, if not a full fledged dance hall, had a place where music happened. And whether it was Bob Wills or that's sort of the classic thing, but classic Texas country music, or there's huge German and Hispanic parts of Texas, all of which have a polka culture, which so you had polka music. That's why a lot of the Western swing bands had accordions. So the, the, the important common thing there is that if you grew up in Texas, dancing was second nature. Your parents danced, your grandparents danced. They went out on Friday, Saturday nights. If it was a big enough town, they might have gone out any night of the week and then pretended they didn't when they went to church on Sunday or whatever. But dancing is just second nature in Texas culture going back however many decades. So when college kids and hippies and whoever showed up in Austin in the sixties, they might've wanted to listen to blues or they might've wanted to freak out to acid rock or they might've wanted to do do whatever, but dancing was second nature. Having said all this about how exciting the first period with Doug was and what a great introduction, it was to everything, and that's all true. I also soon learned that just like the fact that he'd been gone from Austin for a month or two before I got there, I had a friend back in D.C. who who booked shows and booked shows up and down the East Coast and club shows and cool music and stuff, and he wanted to book a Doug you know, Doug would come up and do the nicer club and small concert venues and do fairly well. This guy was like an independent booking. So he was calling some of these places and trying to book Doug, and he was getting a lot of, well, I'm not sure he's kind of unreliable. and So my friend booked this. He kind of had to almost guarantee, like swear on him, yes, Doug's going to be there. And my experience with Doug was I only saw him when he was there, so I hadn't maybe learned about the times when he was booked and just didn't show up. So it turned out I found out there were two factors to this. So my friend booked a tour that was going to include – are Lone Star cafe or the bottom line and the cellar door again and probably one or two colleges and just an East Coast maybe eight or ten day run and our first two shows were in st. Louis and then Springfield Missouri there's two big things here this is not that relevant Doug's a huge huge baseball fan he would talk about baseball for hours at a time which I don't I just don't relate to it I don't know it I enjoy a game now and then but can't go there. So we were in St. Louis. They made a point, and we stayed an extra day. And they booked it so we could go to a Cardinals game or whatever. We went back from St. Louis, which was our first game. We played Whiskey Whiskey something. It was, it was a really nice club there. And we had a great show. I thought, man, this gonna be fun. Tour. We're out playing. We're headed to my home turf. This is great. It's not my version is a big time. I know, you know, showbiz is big time, but it was music that I loved my whole life, and I still loved And I was in the middle of it. This is great. We went back to Springfield, Missouri, and I forget the name of the club. It was really cool, small, kind of hippie-ish, sort of roots music club. And they put us up at a house there. There was some people that had a big house that was... A guy showed up there, and this is... I'd never seen this before, but a guy showed up. Since I don't know the names and it's so far away, I don't I don't feel bad about mentioning this stuff. He showed up with this, you know, Halliburton Antiché case, opened it up, And it was the first time I'd ever seen it. There were sealed bags of really pretty marijuana buds, like what we call Sensimia nowadays, whatever, just what everybody takes for granted if you smoke weed. This guy was the first scientific dope grower I'd ever run into, and he had a big secret field. He actually ended up taking this out there outside of Springfield, and he brought that to the gig, and Doug ended up, canceling the next gig we had, wherever it was. I don't know, it was back somewhere on the way to Washington, D.C. So let's just stay here for a couple of days. And I thought it was just because we were having so much fun and partying. The other thing, I don't know if you know Soup Granda, you probably do. Soup Granda, the bass player for the Ozark Mountain Daredevils. This was their home base. We met all of them. Soup and I joke about it to this day. They were all friends. So we got there, and we ended up booking just like the club. was like, you want to play another night? Sure, and it was so loose and so awesome. But I was freaking out because my friend had personally guaranteed that we were going to show up for all these gigs, and Doug had already canceled the first one. I'm not – I don't know what an excuse he gave. <laughs> and I thought it was just because he wanted to party. And then it was like he ended up canceling another gig, and we're like just going to stay here and party. And they drove back to St. Louis, went to another ball game, and came back, and I was starting to get nervous. It's like – at the time, I thought it was just that he was – so in the moment, and so wanting to have a good time, and he just wanted to party, and it was worth blowing. It also meant we weren't going to make any money on these gigs. I was hoping to do. I was starting to get nervous. We ended up staying there. He ended up canceling the whole tour back east, little by little. And I, this is nuts. And it's kind of fun. And I was like, What have I got myself into yeah. here? And it's not like I had. I didn't have. I have. I hadn't decided that now I found this gig and it's going to make me a star. I'm going to. Be ra- this is fun. I'm just riding the train. We'll see how, how long it'll go. It was very disappointing. And I was caught in the middle with my friend who booked the shows. And this is what I came to find out. And I I'll let you decide what this is. This starts to be besmirch, Doug, a little bit. Um, like I said, he was always honest with the money. If there was money there to gig, he paid it to everybody. He didn't like skim it off the top and pretend there wasn't any and give you a hundred bucks or whatever. And I witnessed that at the very beginning. What I found out was because he was so unreliable and also because he probably bought big bags of weed or whatever in advance, it turned out a lot of these gigs we were getting ready to do, there wasn't going to be any money there. They were makeup gigs for shows he'd already canceled and maybe kept the advance or whatever. So he was probably scared he was going to get up there, and unless we made a whole lot more money at the door or whatever, he wasn't going to be. He was going to have a whole band of people eight hundred thousand, twelve hundred 1,200 miles from home and not be able to pay him. So, I think that was a large part. I ended up taking a Greyhound bus. I'd had enough of that. I was kind of stranded, you know, no income, was kind of tired of the party and starting to wonder what was going on. Many years later, I didn't stay in touch with Doug. We didn't like to call each other up or email, right? Anything Like that. But I would look him up if I was around and see him every year or two. And it's always very friendly. I'm not sure I played with MapTrack. I moved here. Doug called a friend of mine. We'd all been hanging out with. he didn't call me, but he called a friend of mine and said, man, I could really feel all the beautiful vibrations of love in Nashville. And we've laughed about that ever since. <laughs> and Doug had this, he was a one-of-a-kind. He was a,
0: he's definitely missed. I appreciate you inviting me over and yeah. sharing stories. Well, as you can tell, I'm not <laughs> Shy about talking. I appreciate that.
1: Thanks for asking.
0: I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Pete for inviting me over to his house there in East Nashville and sharing these stories. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com. You can pick up a CD, a t shirt, You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at OtisGibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.